Good day to everyone. I am Nicholas Bornotis of Capital Inc. And uh, I am delighted uh, to uh, host today the second webinar uh, in the four-part webinar series with uh, Dr. Martin Stockford. Uh, today's webinar is uh, on the topic of uh, innovative SIP propulsion. When is it available and how is it effective? Uh, today's webinar uh, will focus on uh, the uh, on propulsion systems beyond the combustion engine. Uh, and uh, without any more uh, uh, delay, I will turn it over to Martin. Just to remind everyone that uh, you are welcome to uh, submit your questions live uh, through the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And uh, Dr. Stockford will uh, uh, reply to them after his slide presentation. By the way, uh, the slides are available for viewing and downloading if you go to capitallinkwebinars.com. And uh, Martin, the floor is yours. And thank you again for being with us. Nicholas, th thank you so much. Um, and th especially since I know you're just off a plane. So I'm deeply impressed that you, you've uh, you, you joined us for this. Um, I, I, what I'd like to do is to try and link in this. This is a series of four webinars. and. and for me, it's a little bit of a voyage of discovery because I um, I had the information available, um, I thought, but linking them together um, for an audience of this sort of uh, scale has been a great opportunity to sort of pull the strands together. And so I'm uh, what I'm going to do is I'll link I'll start off by just a quick reminder with uh, what we did last time in the last seminar and then move on to the next one. So, um, and if I just uh, take you into my screen there, we, um, uh, uh, the, um, so the, the story so far is basically that in the last webinar, we focused on the challenge of retaining the power of fossil fuels without the emissions. And we identified four key issues which were going to be important. Um, the whole thing started from the, the challenge of uh, conserving the, the enormous gain in efficiency which the shipping industry has got from the uh, the fossil fuel revolution um, in this chart, uh, which you may remember, shows real freight rates, i.e., money of the, uh, in today's money, uh, two thousand um, dollars, and over the two hundred years from eighteen hundred to two thousand, the shipping industry reduced real freight rates by ninety five percent, and I guess the challenge that lies ahead of us now is that uh, we have to make sure that we keep that saving as we get rid of the carbon, which is tied at the hip with, uh, with fossil fuels. So, so that's the first challenge. And um, it's not just for ship owners. I think that the second point that we were making uh, last time was that this is um, something that has to be dealt with by the, um, the ship owners and the cargo owners. But the problem is that we're dealing with a marketplace. And there are four issues that I sort of the, the last slide I highlighted. The first is costly technology, green propulsion, 
under development is a relatively poor substitute for heavy fuel oils and it's going to be more expensive and that's one theme i'm going to be developing in great detail this time well more detail uh, the second thing is commoditized markets that shipping for the last 30 years has run mainly through the freight markets which are one of the world's great commodity trading markets everything's negotiated it's not a business which focuses on innovation and it doesn't necessarily re reward quality it's it focuses on getting the cheapest price available and that's something we have to think about because um the industry is going to need investment funds and those funds are, are going to be out of proportion to current levels of profits or at least the levels of profits we've seen from the business taken one year with another over the last uh, 30 or 40 years and then uh, finally um, the whole question that ties this together is motivation if we're going to leave the status quo um, I mean no business likes to change and um, to, in order to get businesses to change there has to be some sort of compelling call which make, gives management the ability to force through substantially different ways of doing things and that's where the marketplace is so important and so that's that that's a quick um synopsis of where we got to two weeks ago um this week i'm going to be uh, concentrating on four issues i'm going to start with global energy and the development of green fuels i'll just try and put the whole thing into the context of the world global energy economy um, and then I'll come on to what is really the key of what I have to say this time. That's the price issue, the cost of fuel and the consequences of what I think is going to happen to the cost of fuel as we move into the coming decade. Uh, thirdly, the ship propulsion system and the systematic elimination of CO2. Although, um, I mean, I've just, you know, the, the debate is very much about strict alternatives between systems. I think that the whole question here of going green get it, is one of systematically eliminating carbon from a whole bunch of different activities of which the main propulsor is one, but there's a lot of others. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. And then finally, the timeline to, to, to 2050. Well, um, if we start on the first one with global energy and the development of green fuel, I think this is, um, uh, you know, there's four different ways in which the shipping industry can deal with, with or interface with the world economy and the global energy situation. One is actually onboard systems, sales, solar, um uh, both on board ships that's the, 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 the these are quite minor things today but i have a feeling that as the technology develops um they're, they're very challenging today people doing them seem to be having quite a few problems with them but as as the technology gets better the digital technology gets better we certainly shouldn't be ignoring the chance to capture primary energy on board the ships the second method is chemical energy that's heavy fuel oil with ccs which is an option as i'm getting increasingly keen on biofuels 
hydrogen, methanol, and ammonia. These are all chemical uh, ways of extracting energy by processing a chemical fuel and uh, in doing so collecting um, energy out of it, but not collecting carbon, which has been the problem with hydro with um, the, uh, the carbon fuels. The third method is the nuclear reactor, which I has, you know, this has been gaining an awful lot of cred recently, and I would say it's definitely something that stakeholders should be preparing for. And um, fourthly, secondary energy, that's recovering energy from the existing transport systems. These are all important. Um, but let, let me start just by reminding you, perhaps, and reminding myself too, that the shipping, you know, the, the whole fuel thing has been going through a change for 200 years now. I mean, fossil fuels didn't, weren't sort of immaculately born in the 19th century. They developed. I mean, in, in, um, uh, to begin with, we, this is the American economy, which is a good example, uh, American energy. Uh, it's just the one long series I could find. Um, it, it was biomass, wood, uh, until, um, uh, until about the 19th century. And um, that's still there, about the same amounts. Then coal came in and that drove railways. Um, it drove uh, and it, it um, had a tremendous impact through that, followed by uh, fuel, by, by um, oil in after Pennsylvania discoveries um, in uh, the 1850s. Uh, and that took us up to a, a, a fantastic energy source. I mean, heavy fuel oil, it's absolutely packed with energy. You drill a hole out, it comes, it's cheap as chips. It's easy to move around, it's at ambient temperature. This really took the whole energy fossil fuel revolution to a new um, era. And it had a, when it became available in shipping, uh, which was really about the 1912, it's, it had a very big impact on shipping because of its its various merits. Uh, one of which was you didn't need twenty or thirty people in the engine room to uh, to stoke the boilers. Uh, then gas came behind, not quite as good as heavy fuel oil. And um, in the 1960s, nuclear started to appear. You can see nuclear, which built up to about 2,000. It was going to do everything. Um, uh, in, uh, for example, in 1979, um, uh, the um, you know it, it was widely expected that nuclear was the, the nuclear. Ronald Swain, who was involved very much in setting up containerization and found it a very traumatic business, said he hoped things would be quieter for the next 50 years until nuclear takes over. Can you believe it? Um, and so on top of that, we have hydro, which was coming along with nuclear. You can see it there. And today we've got um, green fuels starting to creep in. So we're early days with the green fuels. That's the perspective. If, uh, if we take a look at the total energy picture, this chart on the right-hand axis shows you world energy consumption in exajoules. And... Uh, uh, you can see 
on the past chart very clearly that uh, it's split into the Atlantic and Japan. That's a bit eccentric, but Japan is a mature economy along with the big Atlantic economies. And as a result, their energy consumption has not been increasing for a long time, uh, 20, really 20 years. Uh, all the growth has been in the Middle East and Asia, um, I suppose, east of Suez. And the sort of predictions that we're getting from the big agencies, these are a mix of BP and... Um, uh, and, and IEA, and um, uh, an extrapolation of this trend takes us up towards the top one, a 760, and the scenario that I've been working with for the base scenario, which is based on BP's accelerated um, scenario, takes us up to about 690 um, terawatts in uh, exajoules, I'm sorry, in uh, 2050. So that you're sort of dealing with some, at least we've got to find some sort of growth of energy consumption. If we split this down, um, and I'm countering through this a little bit just to sort of lay, the, lay out the foundations. Um, if, if we take that forecast and split it down by type of energy, this is the sort of thing we might see so fossil fuels are coming down, solar and wind are increasing very rapidly, and I think we're all wondering if this is possible and how quickly it'll happen. Hydro, we're assuming continue, uh, will continue roughly as it is, and nuclear, I think, is one of the wild cards, and I, is, I'm going to have a proper look at this before the next seminar, and I, I'm inclined to push nuclear up quite a bit in starting in the 2030s. Anyway, that's the basic global scenario. If we, move, if, if we sort of focus in on the electricity consumption, uh, which uh, here we have um, the historic electricity consumption trend in terawatt hours. Sorry, it's a different um, uh, unit, but um, uh, electricity has grown very steadily around 3% per annum. Uh, for the last uh, 50 years. Um, we've got, um, in terms of renewables, nuclear and hydro are by far the biggest. Um, and together, uh, then we've got wind, which is 1.9 out of a total uh, electricity of about 28.4. And solar is one ter terawatt, uh, um, uh, which... Um, uh, it's quite small, but these are expanding very rapidly. And I mean, I crawled through the, the forecasts on these. It is quite hard to see very rapid growth. It needs, it really needs something to motivate it to get mega growth that will produce those trends we saw previously. And the demand is going to be there for electricity because um, uh, we're busy uh, pushing uh, the, the motor vehicles, the motor vehicles out of um, uh, 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 gasoline, uh, which lasts in 2021 about 14.3 thousand terawatt hours of energy was uh, used, created by gasoline. And that presumably is going to find its way into electricity, mostly at some stage. So that's a very big um, focus for the uh, the whole growth of uh, electricity demand. And 
uh, this chart shows you this previous chart extended to 2050 with a growth forecast at 2.3% per annum, which takes us up from 28.4 terawatt hour, uh, thousand terawatt hours to 57.4 thousand terawatt hours. So that, that's big enough to accommodate a growth of demand for motor cars. Um, but we have got a big GDP growth and um, a substantial world population growth, as we noted last time, to deal with. So, you know, I think this sort of growth seems pretty necessary. And the big question is whether we can get the um, the, the, the substantial expansion of bio of uh, green fuels, wind and solar, which I showed you in the previous global energy chart that will be needed in order to meet this volume of world um, electricity production uh, and at the same time to phase out coal um, and uh, to phase out uh, uh, gas that's the these are these are big issues and um, the, this leaves me with you know where does this get us well it it leaves me with a major question about what is going to be the compelling uh, cause of change. What, what is it that's going to make people want need to change enough in order to sort of imp implement all of this new energy uh, consumption and production technology? Well, to, to the, the answer to this, I believe, you know, is going to be in, uh, sorry, in the pricing system. Uh, and so in this next section that's my talk, I want to talk about the energy price price issue. Fuel costs will compel companies to change. That's my hypothesis. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I can't think of a better you know, cause for change. I mean, what, what forced the liner companies to change to containerization was effectively the cost of getting cargo through the ports. I mean, it became impossible, unaffordable. And I think the same thing is going to happen with fuel costs. And um, if that doesn't sound very dramatic, if you think through the model, it is quite an, you know, quite a crucial issue. And the way, the way I think it's going to work is the first step is to look at fossil fuels and um, the price of oil. Oil is the benchmark, I mean, a price in the energy system in the same way that the dollar is the benchmark in the world uh, currency system. And um, it has been extremely volatile, but the trend, if you fit a trend to it, um, the trend is, is, is that oil prices have been going up at 2.3% per annum since the 1960s. It has been volatile. And I think that you know we have to assume that it's extremely likely that this will continue. And uh, in fact, if we look at this trend, fossil fuels are going to remain the marginal energy source for at least 15 years. And that's important because the marginal um, energy source is the one that sets the price. And if you've got a if you've got a flood of very expensive new green fuels coming into the markets in the 2020s and 2030s, um, it's, an, it's a dead cert that I would have thought that the fossil fuel 
uh, cartels are going to piggyback on that and uh, because they are actually the marginal energy source you can't manage without them so i think you you can very plausibly hypothesize that the price of oil is going to grow very rapidly indeed uh, and the pace of that growth is going to depend on the price of the green fuels which are coming in as the other and more desirable source of energy um, this sort of change of structure isn't has actually already started if if this chart shows you um that the the cost of freight um that is determined by two things it's determined by the cost of the fuel and the cost of the ship and over the last 30 years what this chart shows you is that the cost um in million dollars per annum for fuel and freight what i've done is i took a voyage six and a half thousand mile voyage i built up a reason what i hope was a reasonably realistic scenario for a ship uh, operating on that rate and i worked out the cost of freight and in that cost of freight the cost of the ship and the cost of the fuel um, using um, contemporary numbers and what you can see is that what happened was that the cost of the ship increased was very high um, and relative to the cost of fuel until about 2009 and in the last decade the cost of fuel has overtaken the cost of the ship and why is this important well it's important because you adjust the speed of operation of the ship to the cost of the fuel and if the cost of, if the fuel is costing you more than the ship then you're going to use more ship and less fuel and what that means is that you you substitute um, ship for fuel by operating the ship more slowly and I, um, I, I before I get on to that particular calculation in detail let's just take a quick look at the um, uh, at what the cost of fuel uh, might actually be and especially the green fuels uh, this this is a chart I've used been using this for a few years now but I've developed it a little bit I added uh, uh, nuclear uh, fusion uh, um, uh, fission at the end um, and um, I've split it into chemical energy and um, fission en energy and we have our black fuels here which produce carbon and the green fuels here that don't produce carbon uh, methanol of course does produce it, it the formula is shown here and of course methanol contains carbon when you burn it and so to be green it has to be synthesized it's all synthesized it has to be synthesized with green carbon dioxide which you have to find a source of like you're borrowing the carbon dioxide from somewhere um the atmosphere putting it into the methanol burning it and putting it back to where it came from and um the uh the key point here is going to be and I don't want to dwell on this too much is the um the cost of the fuel I I on this line here you see 
I put in a I put in um, heavy fuel oil at seven fifty dollars a ton at the moment. This is um, it's about five hundred for VLSO. Um, looking around, the sorts of costs I find for methanol, hydrogen, and ammonia are about five twelve hundred dollars a ton for methanol, seven thousand for hydrogen. Uh, 1200 for ammonia i'm not claiming these are these are prices um, that seem you know seem to be fairly accepted uh, now you have to adjust these for the fact that these fuels have a very different energy intensity from um uh, from heavy fuel oil and so what i've shown here is the cost adjusted for heavy fuel oil energy density so clearly for heavy fuel oil, it, it's seven, the price, the cost is 750. Um, for green methanol, it's there's much less energy, so it's $2,400 a ton for equivalent energy. For hydrogen, um, it's um, it's about $2,400 a ton, and for ammonia, it's $2,200 a ton. I look, I don't really believe these are exact figures but you've got to start the discussion somewhere and i'm fairly confident that these figures are going to be high that the cost of fuel is going to be multiples of what we're used to paying and um just to support this i, I know some of you will have quite a few of you have seen this chart before i went to i, I looked in a lot of detail at the cost of producing the electricity just the electricity needed to produce the 400 tons a day of methanol that this container ship burns and you need 30 wind turbines 12 megawatts um, to produce the electricity uh, to generate 400 tons of green methanol you're going to have to do a lot of work you've got to still got to get the carbon dioxide and synthesize it but just the electricity if you use offshore wind, it's going to these thirty windmills would cost seven hundred ninety million dollars, and the site, the offshore wind farm, would cost sixty thousand dollars a day to run. So this is very expensive, uh, uh, and the, I'm pretty confident those figures are right today. They might get a bit cheaper in future, but I'm not so sure about that. I mean, offshore is expensive. Solar is cheaper but it's not in the right place you know it's it's not so easy to get vast quantities and then you've got to move it around the place you know um well the point all i was trying to do there was to establish that the fuel is going to be expensive and um i've got this basic hypothesis that um the market will look for the lowest cost freight and the lowest cost freight will be determined by the cost of the the, um, the fuel in dollars per ton. And I show the cost in this matrix, I show the cost of um, the heavy fuel oil equivalent in dollars per ton uh, from 250 to 2000. And the speed of the ship, which um, measures the at most efficient uh, speed at which a ship should operate at this particular fuel uh, cost given and i've used here the current cost of a merchant ship so that cost may change but just for the sake of this argument the cost of the fuel 
is $250 a ton. The cost of the ship is whatever it costs today in detail. And the optimum at $250 a ton on this analysis, which is a detailed voyage calculation, the optimum is six is 15 and a half knots. If you put the price up to $500 a ton, the optimum is about 12 and a half knots. If you go to $750 a ton, the optimum is about 22 knots. And if you get to $1,000, it's 24 knots. Sorry, what am I saying? It, it's, it's $24 a ton. And with our speed is now down to 10 knots. So as the fuel gets more expensive, at $1,250 a ton for the fuel, the freight, the cheapest freight here, maybe you didn't get that, but this is the red one is the cheapest in the, in the column, is we've got now down to 9.5 knots at $1,500 a ton. We've got down to nine knots and at $2,000 a ton, we're down to eight knots. That's where the numbers work. I'm not saying it's exactly that. All I'm saying is that the more expensive the fuel gets relative to the ship, um, the optimum, the, the, the lower the optimum speed uh, goes. And of course, you'll say, well, there's, there's inventory cost and so forth. And we can come back to this later, but the underlying um, point is that very high expensive fuel suggests that we're going to move into an era, an area where lower fuels become much more routine, especially for some commodities than others. And I'll come back to that issue in a minute. Okay, well, um, this sort of dilemma is, uh, you know, you say, well, ships can't go at 10 knots. This is a shipbuilder's advert from exactly 100 years ago in, 20, in 1920. They were advertising the same sort of dilemma. Three different. They're offering three different um, propulsion systems. Uh, one of which is ten and a half knots um, with thirty-six tons of coal. One is 20, uh, uh, 22 tons of uh, of coal of oil with a steam engine, and one is nine tons of oil with a two-stroke marine oil engine, and that. Um, you know, they had no problems with 10 knots. Lots of ships were built for eight, nine, tens and knots in those days because you needed so many to people to stoke the boilers if you went faster, you know. So I don't think there's anything wrong with going slowly in historic shipping terms. Um, well, the third element here is the propulsion system. And I'm pushing on with time a little bit. So uh, my apologies. I'm going to scoot through fairly quickly. Um, most of all this table shows you is that virtually all the ships we use today are, um, are diesel engines of one sort or another. There's seven nuclear icebreakers, etc. The um, the technology hasn't changed that much um, until very recently. This is I, I some years ago I dug out uh, details of all the sixty thousand. Deadweight bulk carriers I could find with uh, fuel consumption and speed data, and as you can see, the the, the speed fell between 1965 and 1991. Uh, to, to, the consumption fell to 30 tons a day at 14 and a half knots. It's been pretty well steady there since then, and 
um, we were coming in with the shipyards offering 22 to 28 tons. So it's sort of edging down. You can edge down a bit, but it's not easy. Today, we've got four options. If we simulate that advert, if I was doing a shipyard advert today, you might be saying, well, I can offer, or, or in 10 years time, let's say, I can offer you four options at different speeds. And the first option is the internal combustion engine, which is burning green fuels. And the second option um, is the fuel cell, which it seems to be, you know, I read some good stuff about fuel cells now and again, and it may well be that we'll have sorted out the technology here. And in 10 years, there'll be a, a fuel cell burning green fuels with an electric motor feeding into the transmission system. Um, option three, I um, think, you know, for a big ship, it may very well be a nuclear reactor with a turbine or whatever they come up with, and that goes into the transmission system. And then finally, batteries and an electric motor with, um, uh, with fast charge capability. So these are all available, uh, or uh, they're not all available, but this is the sort of way that we will be going. And to me, it's a way that is best driven by the price of fuel operating through the marketplace and the shipbuilders responding along with the technology to start to come up with offering the range of options that ship owners need, which is not really there at the moment. We've got a way to go on this one, um, but it will happen. Um, the, the next thing, in this whole line of thought is that um, we, uh, I've got seven variables in my supply model. I won't go through them because I'm running, I'm running over time. I thought it was going to be 25 minutes. Um, uh, you know what I cover this so like. <laughs> uh, the, the only point I wanted to make in this chart is that it's not going to be one size fits meets fits all. Uh, this is. Um, an analysis of the different sorts of ships, courtesy of Clarkson Research. I mean, it's terrific that they continue to provide this. It's got, you can see the numbers of ships here. You know, all of these sectors are going to need a different solution. So um, don't expect one, you know, stop arguing about one size fits all. Let's start thinking about getting the shipyards lined up to offer options for all of these. It's not going to be easy and we're going to need um, you know, there's a lot of bits in the ship that need dealing with, and I'm going to go through this probably faster than the Ethernet can sort with, because I haven't got time to go through all of this chart. But um, you can see here that, you know, there's an, a, an enormous amount of, en of energy disappearing. We get down to 15% of the original energy that goes in as a result of all this energy loss in the system. And there's lots of things we can do with this. Uh, we then look at the propulsion options. We look at the green fuel options. We look at the um, combustion loss and see what we can do to optimize this through different systems, the transmission loss, the wind and wave making loss, and the net thrust, the block coefficient, etc. These are all things which um, focus in on this one really, you know, the absolutely central thing, which is the speed in service, because that's the one thing we know we can do. But of course, once you've got your nuclear, your nuclear power 
into your big container ship or your cape size bulker you can go at 30 knots if you like um that, that <laughs> maybe um but until we get there and we get that nailed down speed is going to be the key drive the key issue and the key driver of speed is going to be the cost of the green bunkers and going slow is the one it's it's a, it's a silver bullet it can save a lot of carbon so the the trick is how we can do that uh nuclear um and carbon capture i have think have a lot of potential i'm getting much keener on both of these and uh it, but it, both of them need organization skill and resources that I don't think many companies have got the capacity to provide today. So instead of worrying about which engine you use or which whether you use fuel cells, start now's the time to start building businesses that by the time we get into the key change in the 2030s, you're ready to do, you're ready to go. You've got organizations that can really do the job. Um, the uh, molten salt reactors you know has enormous advantages i think most people know about this now so i'm not going to go go through it in detail but the great thing is if you bother to read this slide it's compact it fits in a ship it's very safe because you're not you you don't have a highly pressurized tank of nuclear steam you've got um, salt which is hot but um, it just uh, you just drain it into a tank down here if anything goes wrong and it goes solid and all the nuclear fuels in the salt and not only that but as the reaction gets hotter the um the the, the temperature the, the, as the salt gets hotter the reaction slows down automatically it's part of the, the way this whole process works so I, I i like it i mean i don't see the problem really uh, and um, Terra Power uh, with Core Power, in, uh, which are developing this, say the prototype 2026 uh, commercial version 2031 32. Then you've got to go through you know ten years of built, starting to build a fleet. The um, carbon capture very uh, it's costly at the moment, but uh, um, as um, uh, one of the very smart people from Stenner said to me, it's not a, uh, th th this is not a silver bullet, but it's a bit like um, the, um, uh, like sulfur scrubbers, you know, uh, or, or water ballast treatment. Uh, it's expensive, but you sort it out and it becomes routine and you fix it. And I think that um, for at least for the intermediate period, which is probably 15 to 20 years, um, diesel engines burning heavy fuel oil with carbon capture i, I think it it, it to be honest it makes it, it it seems to me to be a bit more sensible than some of the other solutions that involve much more toxic things you know um and then finally the timeline because i really do have to uh, to finish um uh, you've got a sh I, I think that you know there's an, a massive amount of focus but one of the things I've found in my life is that you you spend your life worrying about the wrong thing you know I remember buying a house and I 
was dead worried about the busy road in front of it. And I can honestly say once I bought it, it never occurred to me because it turned out the road wasn't very busy. I mean, you know, things don't develop as you expect. I think the important thing is to get on with the things that you can do today. And I think the things you can day, do today is build businesses, manage your speed, retrofit your, or build a plan to retrofit your fleet. Then in the next four to 10 years, you go on building your capability to do these things, which probably won't be there, but they're all going to need a capability. And if you wait until the options are really there on the table, you've lost, it's too late. Yeah, you've got to lead change. And I think, you know, I look at what, what Maersk is doing with methanol. It seems to me that's exactly what they're doing. I haven't spoken to them about it, but it's a sort of thing. That, and I mean, that, that, that is a good way to move forward on this. And then in the long term, we're going to get, we'll get a big change in the 2030s. 2030 is going to be like a tipping point. And either climate change will go away because it turned out, you know, it wasn't as bad as we thought, or it will be hotting up and we really have to get on and do things. And those who haven't used the 2030s, 2020s to prepare will be the ex-shipping companies, you know, that's, that's the message that comes out of this. And I think the price is going to be what will force you down the road um, one way or the other. Uh, the shipbuilders will be at the heart of this. They have to come up with the options. And, um, you know, uh, some of you, quite, quite a few of you will have seen this scenario before. Waves of change. You can't, you know, you can't run before you can walk. And so we're stuck with the advanced diesel engines for now, the green fuels uh, coming in seriously in the early 2030s. And uh, with that, nuclear and, uh, and carbon capture. Uh, uh, C, uh, CCS. I run this through my model. If we can do these things, if we can do what I've just described, um, we can get very close to the IMO's targets on all the scenarios. But the fact is, if you go slower, it's money in the bank. I mean, the one we know we can do is going slower. And I think the prices are going to force are going to force us to do that, whether we like it or not. Um, and hopefully the charters will hang into that. And this is just uh, pulled out of my model, the sort of time profile for the buildup of green fuels. And really what this shows you is, you know, the world isn't going to change overnight till 2021, 22, nearly halfway through the life of a ship you order today. We're still going to be in the same technology landscape, but not the same management landscape. And that is the conclusion. Number one, the compelling call for change will be driven by energy prices and by people. And But, you know, as a manager, you need a lever to make people change. Growing energy demand, the high cost of zero carbon fuels, the marginal supply position of oil as the energy source in the 2020s, 20, uh, 20s and all going to push up energy prices. Um, I, I don't know quite when. The high cost of green and black bulker, bunkers will drive investment decisions in new and old ships. But really, the shipyards 
just like the Sunderland shipbuilder back in 1920. The shipyards have got to get their act together. I don't think they're quite there. But, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing that advert that says you can have this, you can have this, or you can have this. And they need to be much more disciplined in what they allow ship, shipping companies to order. This business where you can have any pumping system you like, as long as the, the, the inlet valves are in the right place, this just isn't. This isn't going to be possible under the next regime. Innovative investment projects will become viable, as will operation at speeds below 10 knots, and each market segment will find the right strategic balance for its specific customers. It will not be a case of one size fits all. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is it. Thank you. My, I'm disappointed to see that I'm uh, slight. Um, slightly um over my time limits but there you go um so that's that's the end and um i i'm just going to take a little look at the um the q a screen oh there's nicholas has come back well, hi you, nicholas <laughs> very well uh, presented martin and uh, you have uh, as i can see quite a few questions already waiting for you and uh, i just wanted to say that both of us uh, we are coming at the heels now of North Shipping on one hand, the Gramenos uh, event in London. So decarbonization has been the focus, I think, of these two events. So great to see your presentation really elaborating on those issues. And uh, I will let you pick uh, on the questions that you want to address. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for, um, for, for that. Um, let me just take a breath and think about this. Um, what is secondary energy is the first question um and um uh, well pri primary energy um I, I i think you picked up a stray point on one of my slides because I, I did at one stage have a note saying that primary energy is in my book any energy you can generate on the ship in other words if you've got a solar panel on the ship that's primary energy if you've got a solar panel in uh, australia and it's is turned into something that you burn on the ship. That is, in my book, secondary energy. That, that's that's the answer to that one. Um, and um, please uh, do come. Oh, could I just thank those of you who who sent me emails afterwards? It's always good to know there's someone out there. And um, um, the, the the second. Um, uh, question I've got here is what part will the shipbuilders play in all of this? Um, there is not much on order right now. And that's, um, you know, I think I've tried to anticipate that question a little bit in my presentation. And I'm looking forward to getting out to China later in the year to really see what uh, the, the, the shipbuilders are up to. But from where I see it, the shipyards, we have a very accomplished shipyard capability at the moment. I mean, they, um, the, 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 both the Chinese, the Koreans, and the Japanese, in their own ways, all have an enormous capability. But I, I guess, like the shipping, shipping investors, they're waiting for things to shake down before they come up with products. And it seems to me that really, in a way, the buck stops for the new investment, the buck stops with the shipyards. They have to come up with something as ship as Sunderland shipbuilders had done or Doxford shipbuilders had done in 1920. They 
had three propulsion systems. They offered them all and they would give you a price on them all. And they were all pretty standard. And that I, that's my vision going forwards. And uh, I hope they can, you know, that, that very soon they can get forward towards that. And if if the order book doesn't go up, then there's a good chance to for ship owners to make some of that mountain of cash that they're going to need to invest. So, um, you know, it's an ill wind, as they say, that blows nobody any good. Um, next uh, question here from... Um, um, for, from Yanis Taligakis, I'm going to have to lean, lean forward to read it. I noticed the increased forecast of the so-called green energy component, however uh, now reliably available. Can these be sourced? How reliably available can these be sourced? Especially, shouldn't good resilient design almost command the use of fossil fuels in the fishing shipping sector as a robust fail-safe plan. Not I'm working, thinking a little bit about this. Let's just think about this. How reliably available can these be? I can answer that question. Uh, uh, we can get them. You can get them if you're prepared to pay for them. There's a geopolitical stability issue in the green fuels because say solar energy is much harder to do in the more you know established parts of the world china's working so i i think you can do it if you're desperate but the economics are a bit iffy at the moment you know and it's very it, it's very difficult to get these projects up and running and that you know you build some project reading about the projects in australia they have this wonderful sort of solar meets wind project to do ammonia and um, then they discover um, an aborigine site in the middle of where they were going to put it and everything stops for a couple of years so uh, but I, I think I think you've got to hope that it's available and think it through realistically um, shouldn't good resilient design almost command the use of fossil fuels as a robust fail-safe plan. Yeah, I see what you mean. I agree with you. I do agree with you. I think fossil fuels, if you can only, if you can put fossil fuels together with carbon capture, you're starting to get a very interesting, I mean, let's face it, there's enough gumbo, you know, there's enough contraptions on the ship already with your uh, water ballast and uh, your um, sulfur scrubbers and all that stuff. If you can clean all that up and come up with a carbon capture system as well, that I think that that's a good question. And you that would that that would make it. Oh, I see you've got you sent a follow up. Um, um, I think, Yanis, I'm going to jump forward to the next question if i may because uh, you you've asked a geopolitical question which is is a little bit um trickier to answer and perhaps that's something we could take separately an email or something um uh, here's a question from peta there is a huge build-up in methanol powered ships currently if methanol production can't keep up and prices skyrocket do you think there's a risk of a reaction back to fossil fuels. Um, 
I I think that's that's a, a good and obvious question. I mean, when I, uh, I you know last year when I went through in detail the um, the, the methanol project and there's you know there's a one the methanol institute publishes these fantastic reports which list everything um i thought you know it, this is uh, this sounds good but you need a lot of these projects to power one big container ship and i think this is a a limitation and i think what i've tried to do in this presentation plus the answers is to suggest yes yes i think we have to start to see fossil fuels as absolutely something we're going to live with for quite a long time and therefore we have to focus on making those fossil fuels acceptable to the charterers and to the regulators and i think that is perfectly possible it just moves you stop you, you stop sort of fantasizing about methanol and you start focusing on how you get um carbon capture to work, how you manage speed, how you talk charterers or how charterers get into contracts which accept uh, relatively low operating speeds for cargoes which really don't justify high operating speeds at the new energy prices. Um, here's one from um, uh, Lawrence Chirello. Can the reduction in labor requirements offset higher fuel costs? um no not in shipping in fact in con uh, on the contrary i think that shipping is going to have to employ more people not less because it's going to become more technical and really the, the bulk shipping companies don't have much scope to do technical work at the moment uh, i mean i used to have an office next to marshall meek who ran the um the ocean transport and trading um technical department in the 1960s when they were building container ships he had 15 or 16 naval architects and engineers working for him that was just in one company you know i don't know many companies that have got that sort of resource nowadays so i think um you won't be able to offset it on the contrary we should be looking at investing in people and not just training crews but investing in people who can manage this quite complex uh, cakewalk that I've just tried to describe um, and I'll be talking about much more next week but uh, um, oh hello it's um, uh, Yanis has come has come back again thank you Yanis um, <laughs> uh, I've only got five minutes till the end um, oh okay you said afterwards yes I'll, I'll give you a spin afterwards if I can Yanis thank you um, James Dallimore what is your view on regulation at present and is the progress too slow? Um, look, I'm a massive fan of IMO. I've followed IMO closely for many, many years. Um, it's an invidious job. They have, um, they have 170 upwards of members and many different interests. And I think it's a, it's a miracle and a great achievement that they've achieved as much as they have. But if this problem is going to get solved, it's not going to be solved by the regulators. It's going to be solved by the marketplace, which is going to be driven by the shipping investors and the cargo owners and uh, uh, the various stakeholders, including the ports, etc. So uh, let's not assume 
that you know regulators don't do things they just make it they try to make it difficult to do outrageous things if you know what i mean they don't provide solutions they stop you going completely off piste you know um well that's my view but uh, that's uh, um you know um since this is open season um how this is from um, deb goswami how's the transition of existing maritime human beings training going to take place and operate in green ships well you know i think that uh the ships will get more expensive i think the operating environment the wonderful thing i haven't mentioned yet but the the you know the um uh, we're all working from home i'm working from my office at the moment um the bandwidth is fantastic and it doesn't really matter Inmarsat just a couple of weeks ago launched their latest satellite which is more powerful than ev everything they've done before there's a wonderful um, web um, video of it being linked uh, launched and uh, I think the the possibilities for communication are such that you're going to be we need to be looking at ships and shore in the same way as people in many economies now look at working in the office working at home um, these are interchangeable things um, you the you might put a master in the office for six months to look after the IT people who are going to be managing the in communications with the ship so that uh, to make sure that the ship doesn't get deluged with stupid uh, uh, messages from people who don't understand the difficulties of what they're doing you know I think this I, I'm that's not my words it's somebody who knows much more about shipping than I do um so I think that that training and development is going to be a holistic part of this the shipyards are going to need it the shipyards are going to need to learn much more about what goes on on ships the shipping companies ashore are going to have to start going to see a lot more and learning a lot more about what happens on the ships and vice versa uh, because you know Tom Peters um, was a, a, a management guru who became famous about 30 years ago he used to do lectures where he'd walk around sweating profusely and his argument was that the that the managers should manage by walking around uh you walk around you go and see what's going on and then you can really do it and I think that we have to do a lot of walking around so the different parts of the industry the ports the shipyards the shore offices the shipping the ship uh, the ships themselves um the information providers the classification societies all really understand a lot more about what goes on on the uh, in the different parts that, and that is the real training and i hope and i'm sure with the latest technology we can you know it will be possible to to to, to really kick start this but it it needs a new a new way of doing it um i have have run over a little what time is it it's um uh, just coming up to four o'clock I'll take a, a couple more um I, just, I think maybe I'll make this the last um question uh this is from uh Dimitra um Papa Constantinou uh which form of energy should be prioritized and most researched on the benefit of both shipping companies 
economy and the environment? Well, that's a perfect last question. I, I think what I find so interesting about doing these webinars is that I, it helps me to see the, you know, I, what the material means. I have to sort of hype myself up to talk to you and you squeeze out the conclusions. And I think one of the conclusions that has come out this time is that fossil, that fossil fuels heavy fuel oil, LNG, are with us for a long time. We need to work very hard to make sure that we that they are managed effectively for, uh, for uh, you know, during this honeymoon period, which is going to last into the 2030s. You know, shipping is going to have a honeymoon period with green technology. And it's going to be a long honeymoon. It's probably going to last the 2020s. And if you're smart, uh, the smart shipping companies are going to focus less on precisely the precise format of the technology, because I think the shipyards are going to do that. They're going to build all the operations that the priority is to build organizations that as we get into the 2030s when things aren't really going to happen um actually the company is good up for it it's good for it that's that's my view so um and as far as the um the, the form of energy uh the green energies that we've got are great and they will come in uh maybe we we won't need them as much maybe the sort of scenario we'll be looking at is um the fossil fuels with carbon capture and slower speeds get us through the 20s and early 30s um, we get some nice because they'll mostly be dual fuel engines we get a nice supplement of green energies in key trades and batteries in short sea trades you look at that chart so every some 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 parts of the business will really use those green fuels many won't and then uh, as we get into the 2030s, with a bit of luck, nuclear will start to be ready to pick up at least half of the, um, the, the energy requirement of shipping, perhaps even more as we move into the 2040s. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is my final word for this seminar. And I'm only, I'm only two minutes late. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Martin, you can tell that uh, you can go on... Uh even longer because uh, everybody has stayed on to listen to you and clearly everything that you said has been as always uh, particularly insightful so thank you very very much for another great webinar i'd like to remind everyone that um, the this webinar will be available for replay and access upon the de uh, demand and also anyone who would like to access the slides they can go to capitalingwebinars.com and uh, have them uh, download them from there again thank you and we renew our meeting two weeks from now. Thank you, Nicholas. And bye-bye. And thanks to everybody for participating. Thank you very much. Thank you.